0: Wow, that song. Whew, man. I think it just preached the sermon for me already. And some of you are like, oh, that sounds like a really good idea. But, uh, <laughs> um, seen any good movies lately? Anybody seen any good? So, yeah. Megan's shaking her head because we don't get up much. <laughs> we don't like to see as many as we like to, but I do like to read the reviews. I do that from time to time. Um, and in doing that, when I read movie reviews, I've become very familiar with the term, you know, this term. Spoiler alert, right? When you read certain views, you have to watch for the spoiler alert. Well, I was thinking about that term this week, and I thought, what? where did that come from? So I kind of did a little, little study, and I got curious. And, and the, the use of the term spoiler alert got a lot more popular uh, with the advent of the Internet, you know, 20, 25, 30 years ago. But its first use actually goes back to the early 70s, and I don't know what that was. So I'm, that's all the study I did. I'm done. But it's a word that's been around for a while. You know, if you don't want to know what happens, if you want to be surprised, then don't read the review. If you want to be surprised by the end of the movie, don't watch the end of the movie first. Wait till you get there. And when you're reading a book, don't read the last chapter of the book. If you want to know how the story develops, and be surprised. Don't read the last chapter of the book, which is what Rich just did. That was the last chapter of Hosea, so... uh, (laughs) Everything turns out okay. Well, not exactly. <laughs> There's 14 chapters in Hosea. Chapter 14, that is chapter 14. Hosea is the, the first of the minor prophets, and he has more chapters than Daniel, the last of the major prophets. Don't ask me to explain, but Hosea is the first of the minor prophets. But to read the last chapter of Hosea really does not spoil the story. We kind of know the end of the grand story of God, the grand story that God is writing and telling and this ending fits in there. And rather than spoiling the story, beginning with the end of Hosea and those words of reassurance brings us reassurance around the main theme of the book of Hosea, Hosea which Kayla has already introduced for us, this grand love of God, this reckless, overwhelming love of God that will not let us go, this uh, overwhelming love of God that can't let us go is a powerful theme of Hosea. God can't let go of his love of Israel back in the day when this was written and he can't let go of his love for us in this day. Even in the face of the brazen unfaithfulness of God's people, even in light of the tremendous moral corruption that had become part of that culture, and even when the people really pretty much had abandoned God, God still would not let go of them. And the last chapter reassures us of that. Hosea, as I said, is the first of the minor prophets. We're looking at the minor prophets this summer. We're calling it minor prophets, major message. We introduced it last week and we introduced it with this sort of overarching statement right here that's guiding us as we head into the summer. That the message of the minors seems to major on doom. There's a lot of doom and gloom in the minor prophets, And it seems to be that's the major until we see it as part of this bigger message of our loving God calling his people back to holy and hopeful living aligned with his good purposes. God is calling his people back and he's using the prophets to do that. And today as we dig into Hosea a little bit, we see especially that loving God part. Our loving God is calling his people. We see especially the love of God, love that won't let go, love that endures, and it's the restoring love that we then come to know in Jesus. We're just going to work our way through Hosea, and we're going to end up at the communion table today where we celebrate and receive the redeeming love of God shown to us in Jesus Christ, a love that won't let us go. The message of love in Hosea is really wound around a theme of faithfulness and unfaithfulness. You might have caught that in the song if you're not familiar with the story of Hosea. Faithfulness and unfaithfulness. And first we'll look at the first few chapters of the book where it takes off on what the song was talking about. This relationship of an unfaithful wife and her faithful husband, the prophet Hosea. And second we'll look at what, what really the purpose of this is to tell the story of an unfaithful nation living with a faithful God. And then finally, we'll wrap it up by looking at this faithful God and his redeeming love that comes to us in Jesus Christ. But first, we look at this unfaithful wife and her husband. And first of all, we had to get a fix on on, on Hosea's time and place. Uh, last Sunday, we lined up 15 people up here with 15 events in the life of Israel. And rather than pull everybody back up, we'll do that a couple more times this summer. But these were the events in the, in the life of Israel, kind of starting with crea- the Old Testament uh, story of starting with creation and working through all of these different... Um, times in history until we come to this great period of silence before the birth of Jesus. And so where we are right now in the preface is right there in the middle where it says united kingdom or divided kingdom colon north Israel south Judah. So we're right in that period of the divided kingdom. They were only united under three kings and then it split apart and was troubled, two troubled kingdoms one in the north called Israel that was several of the tribes and one in the south it was mainly the tribe of Judah around Jerusalem and that's the period of time where we are. Hosea is mainly prophesying to that northern kingdom, to Israel. His timing is kind of around the middle of the 8th century before Christ, around the 700s BC. And we know that from the the different markers that are given here in the Bible of who was king and who was king here and there and around him. So we know that was about his time. We also know from the king's mention that he may have prophesied for as long as 38 years in his ministry. Not much more is known about him other than his name, Hosea. And Hosea is from the same root as as Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus, which means salvation. That's the name of Hosea. The only other thing we know about him is his dad's name, which was Biri, son of Biri. That's about all we know about Hosea, but what he wrote here. This theme of doom that I mentioned in the Minor Prophets is very much here. The doom that's kind of hanging over this northern kingdom now is the threat of being invaded by the nation of Assyria. In some of the Minor Prophets, we just sort of have a vague threat that's out there, but in in, uh, Hosea's prophecy, it's very clear that Assyria is about to invade and to conquer Israel, the northern kingdom, as punishment. Assyria doesn't know it's doing that, but God knows that it's coming as a punishment for their unfaithfulness. But for Hosea to get that message to the people, God calls him to do a difficult thing. To get to that message, Hosea is called to a difficult life, or what the writer of the song said, a long road home. And he was called to symbolic action, and we read it in chapters 1 through 3, and we get Hosea's sad story of his wife and his children. It begins with God ordering Hosea to marry a promiscuous woman, a a woman who does not just keep her love for Hosea, but a woman who gives her love to many men and not just to one. Her name is Gomer. Some might argue that she was just upset about the name that her parents gave her, but or not. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Her name is Gomer and she's an unfaithful woman. And God explains right away in the first chapter of why he's calling Hosea to do this. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For, like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Very clear why I'm calling you to do this, Hosea, and what I'm saying to the nation of Israel. But can you imagine a godly prophet this one who has been called by God to serve the purposes of God. And here he is being promised a life of pain. A faithful husband, faithful to God, faithful to his wife, loving her no matter what, when she is being unkind and unfaithful to him. They marry, then they have three children And the children and their names become part of the prophetic message as well. And it comes as often as we see, particularly in the Old Testament, through the meaning of their names. The first one is a son and his name is Jezreel, which means God scatters. God scatters. And Jezreel also is a place name in the Holy Land. And it's a place where a battle would be fought, where Israel becomes conquered ultimately by Assyria. The son's name is God scatters. They then have a daughter, and her name is lo Ruhama. And the stark meaning of this is no pity. No pity. No love. I no longer love Israel. is the name of their daughter. And then another son comes along, and his name is Lo-Ami, which means not my people. I no longer love Israel, they are no longer my people. Of course, with our spoiler alert, we know that God comes back to his love for his people. It is even pointed to in the final verses, even of chapter 1. But at this point, at this point, in the prophet's life and the life of Israel, with his marriage to Gomer and the birth of these three children, at this point, this is the needed message of loss and of doom to the people of Israel. This is where God has come with his people. But we see con- contrast to this then. The faithfulness of God reflected in the faithfulness of Hosea himself. Chapter 1 is sort of a descriptive narrative of what happens. And it's written in the third person. It's talking about Hosea. God said to Hosea. Chapter 2 if you read it. It becomes more of a poetic sort of discourse. On Gomer's unfaithfulness and the impending judgment. And then when we get to chapter 3, it's very brief. It's only a few verses long. It's back to descriptive, but it's first person. It's Hosea speaking now. It appears that Gomer has run away and become enslaved. And in his faithfulness and in his obedience to God, Hosea takes her back. He buys her back, actually. He buys her out of slavery. And he says, so I bought her back. I told her I will live with you. And again, points to God's enduring, won't-let-go kind of love. Now, as Christians, sometimes we're tempted to wrap the story up too quickly sometimes. We have this thing that we like. We, we know there's a happy ending in God's story, and so we sort of fast forward to it, right? See, everything turned out all right. Everything turned out all right. We call that triumphalism, where everything has to have a happy ending, Right? Ultimately, there is a happy ending in heaven. But not everything has a happy ending. And even if it does have a happy ending, if that's all we talk about, we deny the pain and the struggle that happened in the midst of it, and the sense of loss and hurt that's come. So we have to watch that a little bit. And so even with this, we need to to let this reality of unfaithfulness sort of sit, Sit among us for a moment. Just, just let it sit, this unfaithfulness of Gomer that reflects back on the unfaithfulness of Israel. And whether, whether personally you've experienced or, or in the life of someone you care deeply about, we know the pain and the hurt of a broken relationship. And too many know the pain and the hurt of unfaithfulness in their life or family. And too many know the feelings of, and the reality of abuse, and a sense of loss and abandonment that come with it. Is God there for me? Let that just sit for a moment. Forget that it turns out okay for Hosea, and feel with Hosea for just a moment. Hosea called to be a messenger for God. Hosea burdened by the unfaithfulness of his people and yet with this powerful message of God's love and yet called to endure this life. And then consider if you can, how then our unfaithfulness to God, I, I don't know whether to use this word feels to God, but I'm going to use it because the scripture is written that way. But how our unfaithfulness comes before the throne of God and the throne of grace and the throne and the source of unconditional love. I think sometimes we're aware of that we know that our sin breaks the heart of God. We know that our sin disappoints him. But we fast forward to the good news there too and go, it's just a manager of sin management. I confess he's faithful to forgive me, I'm forgiven. I feel better now. I'm speaking from experience here. I think so often we manage our own sinfulness, our own rebellion, just by getting, trying to get to ourselves to a place of not feeling bad anymore. <laughs> but can you imagine that it comes before this God of grace as a horrible unfaithfulness? That's what Hosea was living with as he wrote this and lived this. Now, while well, the short story of Hosea and Gomer wraps up in the first three chapters, it really is just that, those chapters. The remaining 11 chapters, I won't ask you to raise hands who read it, but I will remind you each week, Megan, read it, um, to read the chapter. Some of you will love Obadiah week. It's one chapter. You can do that on your way to church that day. This took a little longer. But these 11 chapters now look at this unfaithful nation and and the faithful God. Mm -hmm. While there are many dimensions to the unfaithfulness of Israel during this time in history, it could be summarized really in their idolatry and and beyond. It was really the core of their sin was their idolatry of of worshipping other gods and forsaking the God of Israel. We actually hear it directly in chapter 3 in the transition from Hosea and Gomer into this nation of Israel. It says, The Lord said to me, Go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. To which we all go, Sacred raisin cakes? (laughs) That's their sin? Are they too high in carbs and sugar? I, um, they love other gods, and this is an offering that's given to the god Baal. Baal, if in Old Testament studies, we realize how Baal was the scourge, in a sense, of the Israelites when they would go to worship him. It would be the ultimate unfaithfulness to the real god of Israel. And these raisin cakes were gift offerings of thanksgiving for harvest. And so while we might laugh at raisin cakes, they were the ultimate symbol of we are giving our allegiance, we are giving our loyalty, we are giving our gratitude to another God and not to you, O God of Israel, who has given us life. We hear more of the idolatry woven through these many chapters, but we also see its effect on relationships with one another. The the lack of relationship with God increases immoral behavior. The lack of relationship and grounding with God confuses values and leads to misuse of power. One commentator said of these 11 chapters, they are one long indictment from God on the morally corrupt, politically decaying, and spiritually bankrupt nation. And in and through it all is a stubborn, stubborn refusal to repent. And so then there is God's warning and God's punishment. The warnings are, as I said, of invasion and of obliteration by the kingdom of Assyria. Their punishment will be losing their land, and it's actually what happened. They were conquered, they were scattered, never to return. Judah was conquered a couple hundred years later, carted off to Babylon, you know that perhaps that story, Daniel, and the promise to come back, and they got to come back to Jerusalem and rebuild it, but the north never, ever rebuilt But God still didn't stop loving them. Even though they didn't get the land back, God still had this promise there of his unfailing love for them. I tried to figure out some ways to tell of the faithfulness of God, but I'm just going to read part of chapter 11 and let the word speak. Hosea kind of goes back and forth here of God's love and yet then the the hurt of the pain that came too. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed the Baals and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, And I bent down to feed them. Will they not return to Egypt? And will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? A sword will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. Even though they call me God Most High, I will by no means exalt them. And the very next line says this, How can I give you up Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. They will follow the Lord. He will roar roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come from Egypt, trembling like sparrows, from Assyria fluttering like doves. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. Even though horrific punishment, there's still the faithfulness of God to love his people and to be a God of promise. As I was reading about this passage this week, I pulled out some commentaries that I have on the minor prophets, and I pulled this one out by, some of you who've been around for a while may know the name, James Montgomery Boyce. He was a famous, famous preacher of the 20th century. He pastored 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, which I guess there must have been nine, at least nine other Presbyterian churches in Philadelphia, but 10th Presbyterian Church, and uh, wrote, spoke well-known, influential preacher in the middle of the... 20th century. As I open it up, I look to one of his chapters, and the title of the chapter is The Second Greatest Story in the Bible. He calls Hosea the second greatest story in the Bible. Let me read just just a few lines. He says, The prophecy of of Hosea comes first in the biblical order of the minor prophets. Rightly so. It is not the first of the other 12 either to be written or spoken, but it is the first in regard to its message, being what I have called, quote, the second greatest story in the Bible. No Christian can doubt the greatest story in the Bible is the story of the incarnation, life, suffering, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the story of Hosea is second precisely because it is an anticipation in pageant form, of Christ's story. It isn't second because it is an anticipation in pageant form of Christ's story. The story of God unconditionally loving us in Jesus. The story of Jesus saving us from our unfaithfulness and sin. The story of Jesus. Most powerfully, buying us back from slavery, just as Gomer did in chapter 3, or Hosea did of Gomer in chapter 3. Buying us back. This story reflects what will happen perfectly when the promise is completely fulfilled in and through Jesus. And you know, another word for buying is redeeming, the redeeming purchasing love of God. And it costs something. It costs Hosea something to purchase Gomer and it costs Jesus something to purchase our salvation. And that's the cross. And that's the cross. The sacrificial death of Jesus. In Hosea, we see the love of God, this love that won't let go, this love that can't let go, this overwhelming, reckless never-ending love of God that leaves the 99, love that endures, love that restores, and it's the love we come to know in Jesus. And so our response today will be communion. I know some Sundays we plan worship and communion is like the oh yeah at the end of worship. Today communion, it's, and it never is that, <laughs> but today I want you know this This is our application step. This is each of us coming face to face with our own commitment to Christ, our own willingness to admit our unfaithfulness to God, to come repentant and realize that we don't come repentant and feel helpless here, but we have hope, not just to feel better, but to be at peace with God and to receive once again that unending, never let go love of God. The elements of the supper speak of the price that was paid, the broken body, and the shed blood. But we're reminded that they are a gift from Jesus, a gift of promise, and a gift of hope, and a gift of his unending love for us, in us and through us. Diana, come join me as we prepare to share the supper with you. We'll be receiving communion up front. There'll be two stations on either side of the the front up here. You can come anytime you want as the worship team will be leading us in music. Take a piece of bread. It's gluten free. Dip it in the cup and receive it right then before you return to your seat. It is now our privilege to celebrate communion, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper anyone who has accepted Jesus as Savior and Lord is welcome to come. Anyone who knows Jesus and has a relationship with him comes to celebrate the Supper. But I would say this morning especially that anyone who has received his gift of a won't let go, his gift of won't get let go love, and therefore is sorry for their sin and their unfaithfulness to God, and therefore ready for grace, you are welcome to receive as well and invited to receive this gift from Jesus. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, invites us to Holy Communion. He meets us here. He gives himself to us here. As he gathers us together, and then he sends us out to share his love. Hear then the words of our Lord Jesus Christ as delivered by the Apostle Paul. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took the bread, blessed it, and broke it, and said, This is my body in remembrance of you. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This is the cup of my new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. In remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask you to move us, to be present in your spirit and move us this morning. Move us with awareness of our unfaithfulness, at the same time ready to receive of your grace and your love that won't let go. Move us, Holy Spirit, closer to Jesus, who is our Redeemer and our Savior. We long to live more fully in ways in which you've called us to live, that we might more fully share your love with those in deep, deep need of your healing and your power and your redeeming love. Lord, bless each one of us now as we partake and as we celebrate your gift of love and your goodness. We ask it all in your name, Jesus. Amen.